Welcome to Your Property Matters, the only podcast dedicated to keeping you, the Washington State property owner, business property developer, and real estate professional up to date on the challenges the real estate industry is facing in Washington State. Here's your host, Peter Lukovich, Director of Operations for the Washington Business Properties Association. Hello, and it's great to have you back with us. This week, I'm joined by the Honorable Representative J.T. Wilcox, Minority Leader of the Washington House of Representatives and the Chair of the House Republican Organizational Committee, or HROC. Representative Wilcox has served the citizens of the 2nd Legislative District since 2011. He grew up on his family farm in Pierce County, where he still resides. He's a graduate of the uh, of WSU and a proud cougar and with a degree in history. He's worked for 23 years uh, at his fifth generation family business. Wow, Wilcox Farms, where he eventually was named the CFO and CEO of the business. On a personal note, Representative Wilcox, my first job in high school, I think I may have shared this with you before, was working on a chicken farm in Woodenville, Heistorf and Nelson. And if memory serves me correct, Wilcox Farms may even have a little bit of H&N lineage in its DNA. It's truly a small world. Representative Wilcox, welcome to Your Property Matters. Well, thank you very much. Uh, happy to be on, and, and you're right. We had a long uh, association with Heisdorf and Nelson, uh, <laughs> a really uh, proud uh, early agribusiness uh, that started in Washington State. Well, it was right down the street from my home, and I remember fondly picking eggs and shoveling chicken manure. One of those things we did by hand back in the day. So anyhow, we, we really appreciate you making time in your busy schedule to sit down and take a look at the past legislative session with our listeners here on Your Property Matters and, and to give us a snapshot of what might be upcoming uh, both in the election cycle and what it will look like as maybe some key races to consider and, and policy issues that you think will make a difference. Um, if you do, if you would, please, uh, could we begin by just discussing the makeup of the House currently and what your role is as the minority leader? Sure. Uh, right now, there's uh, 98 uh, total seats in the House of Representatives that's been established for a long time. Uh, but uh, what isn't permanent is uh, who's got the majority and uh, what the partisan balance is. 57 Democrats uh, right now, 41 Republicans, and that's a change from four years ago when it was a near tie at 50 to 48. What happens in uh, Washington in particular is we tend not to have a lot of movement uh, in terms of party balance during presidential year elections. It's the off-year elections where all the action is, and that's why I am uh, just so motivated and uh, working so intensely with my elections team and our candidates to make sure that this immense opportunity that we have in 2022 is fully exploited because Washington needs balance. And uh, you don't get balance if you don't work for it and you don't get balance by wishing for it. Uh, it takes uh, a lot of dedication uh, and uh, it uh, takes a lot of resources. He asked me, uh, what, what's my role as House Republican leader? Uh, it's twofold. During the session, uh, I uh, am uh, the elected head of the Republican caucus, and uh, that means that I actually have a, a big uh, HR job. Uh, we have a staff of about 100 during the session, and uh, then we've got the 41 members. And, of course, they are not staff, uh, although they are uh, employed by the um, 
House of Representatives, they are independently elected officials uh, who have the same right to be there and use a microphone as I do. It's a lot like a family business <laughs> in that way. And you, uh, you, you have many years of experience in a family business, for sure. Boy, I do. I, you know, it's funny. I tell people uh, I got into politics because I was really tired of family business. But nobody <laughs> told me that being in a caucus was exactly the same. <laughs> so that, that's a little ironic. And then uh, I'm really primarily responsible after the session for uh, the results of our elections. And that starts with... Uh, candidate recruitment, and I have never seen a better year for candidate recruitment than we've had. And then a lot of responsibility for fundraising and executing on campaign plans. And then uh, I, I believe strongly, I I don't have that, uh, you know, sort of public point of view where you measure things by the inputs. I have the private sector point of view where you measure uh, things, you measure your performance by the results. I see. And I'm responsible for a good election, and that's what we're going to have. What are some of the key races that you see coming up as far as the uh, the Republicans are concerned? Are there some that you've identified as, as uh, more important than others? Well, um, they're all important, but I think there are some that are more viable than others. Okay. And... Um, you know, we're in this unique moment in history. Uh, I, I think uh, it's quite ironic because we have our moment uh, due to the fact that Democrats a couple of years ago thought that history was ending uh, and that uh, the progressive ideas uh, had uh, won uh, the war mm-hmm. and that all of us conservatives were going to be consigned to the dust heap of history. Uh, They were wrong. That was a moment in history when uh, our country was kind of being torn apart, uh, where we had violence in the streets, uh, and uh, they decided to, rather than address our economy, uh, rather than build uh, sustainable budgets, they would pursue the widest possible social goals and use every single penny uh, of a $16 billion surplus. Uh, uh, an amount that was greater than uh, the entire state budget just a couple of decades ago. And because that, yeah, because that happened, uh, there's going to be a a seismic shift in our politics Uh, across the country. Now we're seeing Republicans running about 10 points ahead of their performance in in almost any district, in almost any state, ahead of uh, Republican performance in 2020 mm-hmm. and uh, as of now we've identified uh, about 15 seats that fit into that model where uh, if uh, if democrats won it by less than 10 uh, it should be a very viable target for uh, house republicans this year and those are mostly around the puget sound area um, mostly from uh, you know say lakewood Washington, close to Tacoma, mm-hmm. uh, up to the Canadian border. And I'm confident that we're going to win most of those. So it looks like a good year for Republicans then is what I'm hearing you say. I have never felt more confident uh, about that. And uh, this is not because uh, I think we've um, got a huge advantage in, in quality candidates, although we absolutely do. Uh, this is just an objective look at the numbers that are available in our country right now. And then we're going to do maybe even better than that because I have never seen so many um, 
highly qualified, highly educated, very diverse conservative people step up to join the House Republican Caucus. It also sounds like you, as you pointed out early on when we were talking about this issue, that the uh, great candidates that you have also seem willing to put in the work because you said it's a combination of both. Yeah, it's absolutely critical, especially when you're in a challenge race. If you just expect uh, some committee or dollars or history to win it for you, you uh, are not doing your part. Uh, You have to knock on about 10,000 doors. Uh, You have to go out and recruit uh, volunteers. Mm -hmm. You have to ask your friends and family to uh, contribute until it hurts. And one thing that I tell all of our candidates, we've got some big funders out there. There's, uh, I think the business community is emboldened. Uh, certainly property owners, landowners, uh, and uh, people in the, the rental housing and commercial um, uh, real estate business are, are ready to contribute. But you can't really expect them to come in in a big way unless you have already shown that your family and your friends supporting you too. Speaking of, of the, that, that hard work, I'd like to shift gears if we could for just a little bit. Thank you for, for giving us um, a snapshot picture of, of the election cycle. I'm going to be bold with you and just ask you a question. If I told you that I thought there wasn't a bipartisan approach to this past session, what would you say? Would you agree with me or would you disagree? Well, I, uh, A, I would agree and B, I would thank you for repeating what I've been telling people as well. Uh, <laughs> why is that? Uh, why, why, why can't the Republicans and the Democrats seem to work together? I think it goes back to what I said before. Two things. First of all, they have a big majority, so they didn't need Republican votes to do what they want. But second of all, I, I think... They had elected a bunch of freshman legislators uh, who didn't have a lot of background, uh, knew what they wanted, and thought that that this was the ideological moment. And so this wasn't really a legislative session. It was an ideological session. And, you know, it's a little harder to compromise when people are are working uh, through ideology rather than the normal give and take and the art of the possible in politics and so they had this unique moment when they had 57 to 41 uh, and uh, people that wanted to implement an ideology and uh, i i think that uh, was a mistake on their part i think it provided a huge opportunity for those of us that are less ideological and certainly uh, uh, not from the left to go back to working on common sense economic issues and, and I will also say I have a more diverse set of uh, candidates to be House Republicans than I've ever seen. And most of those people are motivated by their horror at what was perpetrated in terms of public safety reform. And I, you can't see me, but I'm doing air quotes when I say <laughs> reform. That's a disaster for our state. It's a, a tragedy for many victims. And it's way beyond what the voters in Washington are willing to accept. So in, to some degree, it sounds like um, Republicans weren't necessarily part of the process in drafting and refinement of legislation then uh, in a collaborative approach. Uh, absolutely not. Uh, and the crazy thing is we've got a lot of expertise uh, and we've got people that, you know, have, have been very collaborative in the past, mm-hmm. but that was not desired. Uh, at this time, and just to go back to those public safety examples that I gave you, um, there were uh, a series of three or four major bills that really disarmed the police. 
uh, and prevented uh, a lot of the things that are necessary to keep us all safe. Uh, Republicans uh, offered dozens of amendments to those that were mostly crafted in cooperation with experienced law enforcement uh, officers, and those were all rejected. This year, uh, Democrats discovered what a disaster they had wrought, and they did some fixes, not complete fixes, but some fixes to parts of those bills, all of which uh, had already been contained in these amendments that we'd offered the year before. Hmm. Well, um, I guess it takes time sometimes, and it sounds like uh, it took a couple of extra years in this regard, uh, especially as it relates to some of those law enforcement issues. Um, Any significant barriers besides numbers? You know, the the obvious uh, 56 uh, number that you mentioned, were there any other significant barriers to to a bipartisan approach in the session? Yeah, I would say that... uh... Washington's stubbornness in terms of insisting that uh, sessions had to be nearly completely at a distance made it a lot harder for everybody to collaborate. Mm -hmm. Uh, It meant uh, these large freshman classes of legislators had never met each other. Wow. Uh, It uh, meant that if you were a stubborn committee chair and you didn't really want to hear input, it was much, much easier to ignore it. Uh, and it meant that uh, people, uh, you know, regular citizens or representatives of business or, or other groups could never uh, wait outside a committee door and uh, catch a member that maybe didn't want to take their call. And politics is a profoundly human business. And if you if you remove the human contact, I, I think it leads to disaster. And one other thing that I've said, I, that I learned this year, as a matter of fact, I've done this for 12 years, and uh, I've never stopped learning. Um, one thing that majorities, and when House Republicans have a majority, I'm not going to forget this either. One thing that majorities should understand about minorities is they can help you uh, prevent mistakes. Mm-hmm. You know, they're, they're there to debate, and they're there to oppose. But in their opposition, they're going to big bring up points that are worth considering, and no majority should want to just gratuitously make mistakes. Uh, the Democratic majority did that, and I think a lot of it is because they were just so determined to avoid input. As you know, the Washington Business Properties Association is a broad tent, a coalition of, of uh, property owner interest, residential, commercial, multifamily, retail, and we're most interested in trying to be part of a solution to providing good quality affordable housing for everyone in the state of washington however this past session there were many bills introduced that included provisions for rent control and changing the balance between tenants rights and landlords rights and of course the ongoing use of executive emergency powers and rent and eviction moratoriums raised havoc in the industry what steps did the Republican caucus take in the House to, to try and block this legislation or to, uh, are we going to continue to see more of it in the same? What, what, what can you tell us about that? Well, first of all, uh, I think you're going to see Democrats continue to try to do that. That's why the partisan balance is so critical. I, I have zero indication that they have uh, learned uh, from uh, you know, some of the results that have flowed from their actions. You know, I said before, you should own the results, not just the input, but that's not really a, a thing sometimes in politics, especially on the left. Um, for the last three or four years, 
ideology has been most visible when it comes to housing issues, especially rental housing issues. And uh, some of the, the most interesting debates have happened in that arena. And we've got some very, very qualified House Republicans. Uh, everybody knows Andrew Barkas, who has spent his whole career in uh, real estate. And we've got other members that uh, have been equally influential. And the nice thing about having Andrew in this is Andrew's a collaborator. Uh, and so he's someone that can fight the trenches and then the next day start working on a collaborative uh, amendment. And that happened in a few cases. In fact, some of the housing policies that passed uh, that was that was positive policy uh, it didn't have his name on it, but it was his policy. That's the other thing that a majority does. They don't like the minority to get the credit for good policy. So they'll just pick it up and incorporate it in their own bills. But Andrew is usually responsible for those uh, positive results as well. I thought that we were also more successful in stopping bills, uh, sometimes in committee and sometimes uh, after kind of a tortuous history on the floor calendar. If it comes to the floor, it's going to pass. The Democrats don't bring it to the floor unless they have the votes to pass it. And so the effort uh, on bad bills is designed to create enough chaos around the bill that they just can never get to 50 votes. And that happened in several cases in really creative ways. I, I uh, Andrew came to me with one idea that I had never heard of, and, and I was floor leader for six years, so I'd been around about every floor maneuver you could imagine. Uh, and I'm not even going to share the idea because I'd like to do it again. <laughs> uh, it, but it created, I think, so much uncertainty and chaos uh, that the bill became radioactive. And uh, it uh, never came to a floor vote and died on the floor calendar. So there so, are things then that the minority party can do to block bad legislation. Well, that's true. And it all depends on, uh, it can never be a, a brute force fight. Mm -hmm. uh, the way that you, can, that you can stop things is when the other side either gets confused or they make a mistake. And I think the confusion was just too much this time. So you see the uh, Republican caucus continuing to support affordable housing, good quality affordable housing, and, and less government uh, regulation to, to make that more widespread across the state? At the state level, I don't think there's anything more important. You, you've heard that from the other guys, uh, but I gave the same speech four or five times this year as we passed um, housing legislation that ranged from uh, mediocre to disastrous. And, that, and a lot of it had to do with building codes, et cetera, too. And what I, I usually close the debate if I do speak, and what I said is uh, why on earth, uh, when we all know that we're short 250,000 housing units, that means that there's 250,000 families that don't have a home, why then, instead of making it easier and less expensive to build housing, are we making it harder and more expensive to build housing? And it's, it's an addiction to regulation. It's an addiction to often ineffective environmental causes. Uh, and I don't see any indication that the Democratic Party is going to give up on that, even though they're shedding critical supporters day by day. Uh, one of the most interesting things to me over this you know, political interlude for elections is that building trades are be rapidly becoming Republican. And it's because they see their jobs being choked off by this epidemic, a new epidemic of uh, regulation and, like I said, often ineffective 
environmental efforts. Well, you probably looked, uh, as, as I did during the session, at, uh, with a little bit of amazement as we saw the, uh, the plumbing, plumber unions and labor unions come out against some of these uh, national, or natural gas uh, prohibition um, laws that were being considered and pushed by the governor's office. Uh, it was interesting to see labor rise up against that and voice their concerns about the loss of jobs and, and impacts uh, as well. Well, I think it was a, a critical shift, and it's one of the reasons I'm so uh, confident about these elections. Um, you know, th these these people that are union workers are conservative in many ways. They're you know they're gun owners, they're commuters, so that they're certainly impacted by the skyrocketing price of fuel. That's going to get worse because of uh, some carbon legislation that's going to be kicking in and they also are very close to people that occupy housing and it's almost impossible for them to understand why we demonize the most efficient and lowest cost way of providing heat for a variety of reasons in our buildings uh, and the other side can't really come up with a reason it's because they've fallen into the trap of demonizing every source of carbon Part of my uh, original question during this this segment was also about the uh, executive emergency powers and rent and eviction moratoriums. Um, you you represent one of the four corners, as they say, uh, in Olympia, uh, being the the leader of the of the minority party in the House. Um, what uh, action or what interactions did you have with the governor's office in in trying to to see if there were ways to to affect good policy, but maybe not with the use of emergency powers and, and kind of that uh, directive approach. Were there ways or were, were, were you cut out of that process? Well, there was some collaboration early on. And, and the way that the laws regarding emergency powers work in Washington can be a little confusing. Uh, there's about four separate laws that go back to the 80s. They were emergency powers were designed for nuclear war or uh, a catastrophic earthquake. Uh, the Columbus Day storm, that that kind of thing. I, I don't think anyone ever imagined that they'd last for ten, for several years, maybe maybe three years. Who knows? We're over 700 days now, and um, uh, they they never really, I think, thought through just how nonsensical it was to have a state of emergency that could be declared by the governor with no other input and could only be ended by the governor. Uh, that's anti-democratic for sure. And um, there's also a couple of different kinds of uh, emergency powers that he has. Uh, he can suspend some laws, uh, and that takes uh, the agreement of the Four Corners to extend. And those are almost all very innocuous things, like uh, we agreed uh, to uh, extend uh, uh, suspension of penalties on taxes and fees, for example, when the... Um, pandemic was making the, the biggest impact. Um, then he's got his uh, uh, ability to uh, create new regulations, for example. That is his alone. Uh, when it came to mask orders, the Four Quarters has no input at all. When it comes to shutting down businesses uh, or making these, you know, sometimes impossible to understand distinctions between businesses. That is the governor's power alone, and the Four Quarters has nothing to do with that. I see. Um, so, so there was a little bit of discussion early on, and uh, there were a few things that we refused to extend uh, because we just didn't agree that it was positive uh, for the state of Washington. Uh, and, 
in general, when that happened, he'd just laugh and go to the press. Uh, or sometimes, it, you know, it was relatively amicable. What we really need is um, uh, a bill that he would sign that uh, would uh, roll back uh, his ability to indefinitely extend. Uh, I'm skeptical that he would ever sign one. He is kind of laughed when that's come up in public and uh, when we had an opportunity to vote on that in the house uh the democrats brought it up at 1:30, and after about 20 minutes of debate told me they were going to pull it down unless we quit debating well <laughs> i wasn't i wasn't ready to to stop trying to improve the bill so they pulled it down uh an initiative could do this uh and i've got some uh hope for that but I think really what has to happen is we have to have uh, a legislature that will pass uh, a bill that makes sense and a governor that will sign that. And it might take a few years to get to that, but we're not going to stop talking about it. Okay, understood. It concerns the WBPA greatly that there were, uh, as you mentioned, some regulatory uh, um, initiatives that he that he made under those powers. He also was able to suspend some laws or with the help of the Four Corners or, or collaboration. But um, what I didn't hear you say is that the governor should have the power to be able to suspend contracts and declare private parties uh, uh, relationships null and void. And, and that was, of course, a great concern. And, and I know that uh, that was addressed in, in more than one forum um, by, by the Republican caucus. So. Well, I should have said more about that, too, because <laughs> that's crazy. And, you know, now that we know how to have a, a legislative session from a distance, Mm-hmm. Uh, there, there's no excuse for this long-term thing. We, he could call a special session. Uh, you could, you could run whatever bills he needs in one day or two days. No one would have to travel. Uh, and uh, this is just a misuse of our government and a lack of respect for the three-branch system of government that we all had faith in. Representative Wilcox, thank you so much for for sharing your insights and and findings about the past legislative session and taking a look at the election cycle. Anything else that you'd like to leave our listeners with uh, uh, before we, we say goodbye? We, we would be in a much worse position if it wasn't for the persistence of uh, people that provide uh, you know property for businesses and for uh, those who need a dwelling place. And it's been damn discouraging. Uh, I know it has. And a lot of people have left. But for those that have stayed, uh, don't give up. Thank you for that message of of hope and fortitude. It seems pretty clear that the members of the WBPA and real estate industry professionals across the state must continue to remain vigilant to protect uh, more attacks on property rights. Please join me next time when we'll sit down with Senator John Braun, the leader of the Senate Republican Caucus and a member of the Senate Ways and Means Committee and the Labor, Commerce and Tribal Affairs Committee. On behalf of everyone that makes this podcast possible, stay safe and may you and your property realize their full potential. You've been listening to Your Property Matters, a podcast presented by the Washington Business Properties Association designed for you, the real estate owner and industry professional. Listen to our other podcasts wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about our association or to become a member of the WBPA, visit our website at wapropertyrights.org. Thanks for listening.